the free Methodist way. Perspective, who or what is really leading you? By Bishop Emeritus Matthew Thomas. It is safe to assume everyone has heard the word disciple because it is a common word used in both traditional and contemporary ways. Most have a grasp of its essential meaning, to follow, emulate, or serve someone. Most Christians have a good idea whom it is we should follow, emulate, and serve, Jesus. The only way to follow Him is to know Him, His words, expectations, commands, and priorities. How is that possible? The safest and most objective way to know the historical Jesus and what following Him means is through the Bible. There, we discover God's will, His Son, and His plan for our lives. The Bible is, or should be, the textbook and ultimate authority for our faith and practice. That is why John Wesley, though a voracious reader and learned scholar of books from patristics to contemporary literature of his day, wrote, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a person of one book. His concern was not about the importance of being well-read and informed on many subjects. The chief matter was how to live a life worthy of the Lord. See Colossians 1 verse 10. Leading to eternity with God. There was only one book speaking with compelling authority on that matter the Bible. That is why, as far as discipleship is concerned, the Bible has no equal. That is one of the reasons that so much painstaking work has been poured into the publishing, translation, and distribution of the Bible. Historically speaking, it has no equal among other religious writings. Many scriptures of religions other than Christianity either lack historical context or they are historically questionable. Dr. Nelson Gluick was the president of Hebrew Union College and a highly respected archaeologist whose reliance upon the historical accuracy of the scripture led to the discovery of 1,500 ancient sites. Regarding the Bible and archaeology, he wrote the following, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail, historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical description has often led to amazing discoveries. The Bible points the way to Jesus and does it over nearly 1,500 years of introduction by more than 40 authors and scribes from three continents. The Bible is truly unique. It is more widely published, translated, distributed, read, and quoted than all other books in the world. It has been used as an archaeological aid. It has been proven to be unique in its historical veracity and has explained and revealed much about cultural and social changes spanning three millennia. It has been written in multiple literary forms such as narrative, story, parable, history, poetry, and legal to name a few. It has influenced kings and queens and the formation of constitutions and systems of justice around the world. The Bible is filled with prophetic utterances that have been fulfilled in unparalleled ways. It claims authority and has given good reason to deserve it. 
No book can claim the Bible's influence or match the Bible's authoritative nature. It is natural, then, to consider it the chief authority in our discipleship following Jesus Christ. All Orthodox movements have regarded it with the weight it deserves. However, we are living in unusual times where authority is far less objective and precariously far more subjective. Many read the Bible for inspiration and comfort only. Far fewer are reading it for wisdom and direction as we follow after Jesus. In the Bible's place are the larger community's opinions that are easily accessed through social media and the 24-hour information cycle where authority is constantly challenged and defined. Every voice seeking our agreement. For others, personal relationships seem to hold unquestioned final authority on most matters. What are we to do about this and how are we to respond as believers? How is this fleshed out in real time? Why does social authority supplant something more timeless and objective? The process is no doubt more sophisticated than this summary offers, yet I will attempt a simplified overview. First, the authority of self, humanism, and culture and opinion, social influence theory, usurp biblical authority. Here's how this works. Matters that would normally hold great sway in our thinking, due to the overwhelming preponderance of attention given in the Bible, only receive minor attention, if any at all, if the social enterprise is not expressing interest or concern. What should be considered relevant to all people at all times in all places and hence addressed in the Bible gets little attention if it is not centered in the matters gaining swirling attention with these people at this time in this place. Truth-telling and its cognitive virtues, integrity and transparency, and vices, hypocrisy, lying, and suppression of truth, fill the pages of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. They are of seminal importance there and should be to any disciple desiring to follow Jesus and the God of the Bible. Yet, in contemporary society, truth-telling is often subordinate to subjective ideals, my truth, and self-advancement, utilitarian use of facts, that would help us achieve personal goals rather than kingdom fruit. Second, if a truth is hard to observe or seems odious to others, it must be ignored or altered to remove difficulty or offense. A simple reading of the Gospels in the Bible would leave any attentive reader to the conclusion that Jesus said many hard things, requiring discipline and commitment leading to obedience of his followers. This is often off-putting to those who prefer to hide their sin and shield themselves from criticism. Evidence of this is that church attendees are often better disciples of the culture than Jesus. They follow that which is easiest, offends the least, and is doable with or without faith. I remember as a young Christian armed with little, if any, biblical mooring, yearning to know what the Bible suggests or demands that I do. In attending a Bible study one day, I ran across the Ten Commandments where I read a commandment to honor father and mother, Exodus 20, verse 12. I had left home more than a year earlier in my high school years as a result of a serious rift between my parents and me. At age 15, the situation deteriorated and resulted in my departure three times, the final time for good. I had not spoken to either parent in more than a year. After reading that verse, I committed to my fellow Bible students that I had no choice but to humble myself, re-engage my parents, and seek forgiveness. 
which would lead me to a journey of lifelong honor of them. My friends knew how that resolution might come at a great cost. They tried to dissuade me. Their logic was, it is important that you know these truths, but not that you sacrifice your health and safety by carrying them out. I was shocked. I could not see my comfort or the myriad of possibly negative outcomes as justification for disobeying what God commanded and what eventually turned out to be my best step of obedience in reclaiming a meaningful and loving relationship with my parents. When society or close relationships hold supreme authority, we tend to moderate difficulty and regulate challenge to our own detriment. Third, it is all too common to confuse pleasing or mollifying people with loving them. Acceptance is a powerful authority for many, and culture influences that authority. People join and remain loyal to gangs for acceptance. Parents turn a blind eye to things that will harm their children for fear of disappointing them. People will act with unbelievable cruelty if that cruelty or bullying will help them find favor with the right crowd. In each of these cases, and many others unmentioned, pleasing or mollifying others does not lead to their happiness, maturity, or salvation. Books and articles have been written to address when helping others actually hurts them. As the power of a relationship holds ultimate authority, then the Bible becomes ignored or distorted on the most important matters in life. Individual authority, subjective truth, cultural persuasion, avoidance of truth, people-pleasing, and acceptance are all powerful forces that often stand in opposition to biblical authority. So how has this affected the church in current society? People change their theology not on the basis of the authority of Scripture, but on a more fluid and seductive authority. The crowd, or herd, as it is called in psychological terms, I have seen it often. People form views and opinions about human sexuality and change their theology, not on the basis of new revelation from the Bible, but on the implication for their loved ones. I hear mostly something like this. Yes, I know what the Bible says, but I love my son. And so, in other words, the timeless truths of Scripture are less formational than my loved one's current decisions. Whole denominations have changed their position on scriptural authority simply because of their deference to social authority. The same can be said of indefensible positions on racism, sexism, justice, human trafficking and slavery, immigration, and how we treat the foreigner. When emotions and social connections reign supreme and hold the greatest weight of authority over our lives, We sadly ignore or distort that which should be our first line of reason and theological sanity. This can lead to becoming followers of no one or everyone rather than the one. If we are going to be a disciple of Jesus, then we must be aware of the pull of cultural influences as we hold them against the authority of Scripture. The Bible must hold authority and our attention. It must inform our beliefs and practices. Then we will rise above the shifting tides. When something is authoritative, then other ideas or competing arguments are subordinate to the authority. In this regard, when the Bible makes claims of truthfulness in an area, it offers precedence and demands elevated respect and consideration over all other competing interests. 
living our lives and doing things with the highest regard for the authority of the Bible results in the best outcomes for all concerned, whether they know it or not. The only way to be a true and faithful disciple of Jesus is to follow the historical Jesus recorded in his historical record. After all, we are to be less like the world and more like Jesus. Ironically, then we will be of more use to the world for Jesus, the one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. Discussion. Who or what is really leading you? Open your group gathering in prayer discussing this thought before you pray. Regardless of who we are or our life experiences, we are all led by persons, places, influences, advertisers, heroes, and public figures. Who leads you? Consider to what degree Scripture really leads you. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a person of one book. Number one, do you resonate with John Wesley to be a person of one book? Considering your interaction with Scripture honestly for a moment, do your actions say that you are a person of one book, the Bible? Number two, Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Share your thoughts as to what it means to you to live a life worthy of the Lord and describe how you would measure that. Number three, Bishop Thomas describes how archaeologist Nelson Gluick found that the Bible is historically accurate. To what degree is historical accuracy important to you as a believer? Number four, the Bible is also a prophetic book. One simple definition of prophecy is to speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Prophecy reveals hidden things and speaks to future things. Why do you think the prophetic nature of the Bible is important to the life and faith and belief in God? Number five, how has the shift from objective authority to subjective authority changed the way most people relate to the Bible? Number six, Bishop Thomas says, first, the authority of self, humanism, and cultural opinion, social influence theory, usurp biblical authority. Do you agree or not? Why? Number seven, thinking only within the church for a moment. How has cultural authority or self-authority begun to shift views of biblical authority? Number eight, Bishop Thomas also says, Second, if a truth is hard to observe or seems odious to others, it must be ignored or altered to remove difficulty or offense. How have you seen this at work in the church today? Number nine, Bishop Thomas took the biblical command to honor father and mother at face value even though it may have come with a cost. Do you believe we take such commands at face value today, or do we view them as suggestions? What is the difference, and how does either approach change our lives of faith? 
Number 10. In this final segment of Bishop Thomas's article, he touches on matters of the heart. The desire to please people often is confronted with biblical truth and authority. Where have you experienced conflict in relationships due to biblical commands and authority? Number 11. How do we continue to love people when they have clearly decided to live in ways that are contrary to Scripture? Does love equate to overlooking sin or condoning sin? In the Free Methodist Way, a God-given revelation describes how our culture must be interpreted by Scripture, not the other way around. As a group, describe how we can do this well. Choose a cultural trend and discuss how and where Scripture speaks to it. Discuss how Scripture interprets that cultural trend and how we as Christians should live and respond to it. Close in prayer. Perspective. False Freedom by Brett Heinzman. I remember riding in the back seat of our 1966 Dodge Polara as my mom was teaching my sister to drive. The car was massive, like many 60s sedans. From the sofa-sized back seat, I could hear that my sister was having trouble judging if she was staying in her lane. Look at the hood ornament, my mom instructed. Line it up with the edge of the road and you'll be fine. Remember hood ornaments? Our Polara had one that resembled a decorative crosshairs so you can aim with precision for the road's edge. As incomplete as my mom's method may have been, it worked. It gave my sister a very specific way to keep the car under control and on the road. Her anxiety turned to confidence over time, and she has become quite the amazing driver and has a love for nice cars. Freedom is only true freedom when it operates within boundaries. When did we come to believe that the absence of godly restrictions is okay? Love is inextricably bound to disciplines, boundaries, instruction, guidance, warnings against what is wrong, and encouragement to do what is right. Healthy and holy restrictions are life-giving. God-given revelation is the way we align our hood ornament with the edge of the narrow road. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you and I choose the wide road, we choose destruction. Jesus' instruction is loving. He's warning us to keep us away from destruction. He's also truthful. That only few will find this narrow way. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He also prophetically announces that only a few will choose a God-given revelation as their way. The amazing simplicity of this seems to become tangled and confusing when we begin to argue with the meaning of Scripture. We argue because we can't seem to attain self-control. We argue with Scripture when we try to justify behaviors, feelings, urges, or selfish desires. We argue with Scripture when we just don't want to submit to its authority. We seek to reinterpret and redefine, recontextualize and reassess what God really meant when he said, fill in the blank. When it comes to truth, you and I will never win the argument. So what do we do? We let scripture instruct us, encounter us, 
reflect any dissonance between what is holy and what is not. We let it study us, examine us, inquire of us as to the state of our soul. We believe it to be breathed by God and accept it as the best way to a life of holy love and freedom. We sacrifice our struggles, whether trivial or costly, and we keep our eyes on the grand hood ornament of Scripture, refusing to step off the narrow road that leads to life for even one moment. It goes without saying that not everyone sees Scripture this way. A cursory glance at today's society is adding new layers of meaning to casting off inhibitions of all kinds. We can expect that in the world. But when it creeps into the church, we must instruct and correct, admonish and discipline with the same love, truth, and grace found in the same scriptures. To do otherwise would be reckless and not in keeping with God's character. Because this way is not for everyone, not everyone will join us. This shouldn't be a surprise. Hear Jesus speaking to his own dearly loved Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Matthew 23 verse 37. If Jerusalem was not willing to accept Jesus when he appeared in the flesh, we must come to terms with the fact that not all people will accept him today. But what about you and me? I believe that our strength as a family of faith in the Free Methodist Church will come in our mutual submission to the authority of the Word of God, regardless of our background or experiences. This single thing holds immense power to unite us. So, let's shed all forms of false freedom and embrace the narrow road of God-given revelation, willingly, joyfully, decisively knowing the amazing benefit of walking in the ways of Jesus, that this earth may look more and more like heaven because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Discussion. False freedom. Open your group gathering in prayer, discussing this question before you pray. What are we really asking for when we ask Jesus to set us free? Number one. Brett begins by telling the story of his sister learning to drive. One simple instruction helps to build confidence and thereby freedom. Line up the hood ornament with the side of the road. How does this apply to our lives as we follow Jesus? Number two, what is the difference between freedom and absence of restrictions? What does freedom produce that absence of restrictions does not? Number three, Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. John chapter 14, verse 23. How does the meaning of his words change if he were to say, Anybody who obeys my teachings will love me? Number four. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about entering through the narrow gate. How do you interpret this metaphor Jesus uses to describe our entry into his kingdom? Number five. Many Christians talk about their walk or the path they travel. These are obvious metaphors, but for what? Describe them and talk about them in your group. Number six, now add the narrow road versus wide road. 
Why does Jesus use the measurement of width to clarify his meaning for how we are to live our lives? Number seven, Brett points out that not everyone will embrace the free Methodist way of embracing the authority of Scripture. How can we personify Jesus in the way we disagree with others? Number eight, John Wesley taught about the means of grace. In other words, these things are pathways to God's grace. Let's consider for a moment that there are pathways to freedom in Christ. Discuss each of the words below and how they can be effective pathways to freedom. Love, holiness, prayer, obedience, submission, surrender, selflessness, patience. Others? Conclude your time together in prayer, asking the Lord, to be set free indeed.